This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. This is the show that explains the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing, and we try to help believers become thinkers and thinkers become believers. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And today, Kirk, we are going to be talking about searching for the meaning of life. Oh, what wow. is the meaning of life? Yeah. And is it discoverable? The basic question. That everyone wants to know. <laughs> You're right. Well, our website is evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can find bios there. You can find past shows or we also podcast through iTunes, so just search for Evidence for Faith on the iTunes application. Well, Kirk, before we get into our topic, I don't have a news item today, but I did receive a very interesting essay by someone called Vishal Mangalwadi, and it turns out he is an Indian Christian, and he wrote an essay that's about nine pages called Why Christianity Lost America, <laughs> and I thought it was important because it really goes to the point of this show and how we try to show the intellectual side of Christianity, how we say that we're here to help believers become thinkers and thinkers become believers, and his essay is about how Christianity has changed over the last hundred years, and it's really interesting. So, this, is, as I said, is about nine pages, and we can't go into all of it, but I thought I'd just concentrate on the first page or so, because he sets up this issue of what is different about Christianity today from the Christianity of 100 to 150 years ago and before. Sounds interesting. Yeah, it is very. Well, he starts off by talking about a Pew Forum research uh, study. It's from the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, and the researchers were very surprised at the finding that American evangelicals were economically poorer than Roman Catholics. And it surprised them because they thought that the economic miracle of the modern age was the fruit of Protestantism. Now, they're referring to something that probably most people have heard about called the Protestant work ethic. Mm -hmm. And it's, this was a thesis developed by a scholar by the name of Max Weber, and I believe his book was actually called The Protestant Work Ethic. But the idea is that the biblical truths of Christianity, when they were brought 
to fruition through the Reformation and brought to application made such a difference in people's lives that it brought prosperity to the world. So that's what they were thinking would happen in their comparison of economics between different religious groups. It turned out that Protestants actually are poorer than others. So the, he says here, the study raised questions such as, has American evangelical lost Protestantism's original DNA? Do American missionaries still carry the good news for the poor, which is a quote from Luke 4.18? Or is their success spectacular in some countries, a tribute to the original and still lingering image of Protestantism? Why did Christianity lose the power that gave it influence over education and economy, government and law, press and entertainment? How can the church recover the power to prevail over the forces of evil? Wow, this guy sounds really uh, well-schooled. Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting question, and he does seem very intelligent. So I really did enjoy the essay. It looks like this is going to be the title of a book. So I believe this is kind of, if you get towards the later pages, it sounds like this is going to be a book that he's going to write uh, on this topic. So this is kind of a, a fleshing out of the idea and putting it out in public for people to respond to. Yeah. And he's, he's what, listened to some of our podcasts or whatever? Is that why he sent the email to you? No. It's actually, I don't know where he published this. It does not say, this I got off the internet, someone sent it to me. Oh, okay. I thought you said he was a listener of the show or something. No, no. Wouldn't that be nice? Sounds like we well, ought to get him on here. <laughs> I tell you. Yeah, we should get him on as a guest. Yeah. Okay, it does say that he's also written a book in the past called uh, The Book That Made Your World, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. <laughs> Thomas wow. Nelson Publishers, 2011. So you can see how uh, his concepts fit right in with what we talk about on this show. That's really interesting that this stuff is coming from a guy in India. Yeah, exactly, right. Then he says, here he says, in November 2011, so what, two months ago? Right. I met an American missionary who has served in Guatemala for 36 years. He described a recent unpublished doctoral study examining Protestantism in one part of Guatemala. The Hispanic scholar had hoped to substantiate Max Weber's thesis on the connection between Protestantism and economic development. The data, however, drove him to conclude that the gospel taught by present-day American missionaries makes no perceptible difference to the economic life of the believing communities. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, he briefly then talks about the difference. Of course, he actually goes into it at length in the paper, but at least at this beginning part that I want to cover, he just briefly talks about the difference between Protestantism of 150, 200 years ago to today's Protestantism. He says, classical Protestantism was synonymous with educated clergy. USA's, the USA's DNA, for example, was written by a network of 140 university graduates who founded the Massachusetts colony. So he's going back even more than 200 years ago. 100 of these had studied in Cambridge. Significantly, 35 came from Emmanuel, the most Puritan college in Cambridge, and 30 in Oxford. 
Within six years of arriving, they established the college that became Harvard University, committed to veritas, or truth. 20th century American missions have ignored higher education to the point that many Guatemalan Protestant pastors do not even have a high school diploma. In Argentina, he says, Protestants, including Charismatics, Pentecostals, and Evangelicals, have over 50 mission agencies and 500 missionaries, but not one university. So even though it seems like they are focusing on missions, yet they seem to be having less and less impact on the society as a whole and are essentially undermining their own efforts. So... He says, as his answer, he says, the, this essay summarizes one factor, the brand Christianity. And I won't read much more about this, but he's basically saying that we gave up on the brand of truth and we adopted the brand of faith. And that's that blind faith that we hear about so much. He talks about how he asked some of the students at a university about the question, if Christianity were not true, would you still believe it? <laughs> now, I did the same thing this morning in my Sunday school class with the high school and college kids yeah. and asked them that question, if Christianity were not true, would you still believe it? Yeah. Only one person said no, they wouldn't. Really? The rest said yes, they would believe it, even if it were not true. Wow. Yeah. And of course, that actually is kind of a logical fallacy, because if you think something is not true, then you do not believe it, even if you say you do believe it, right? Because to believe something means that you think it's true. So there's no such thing as believing in something that you know is false. In a sense, you're, you're just play-acting. Because you actually don't believe it. You believe it's false. Right. Right. To believe something means you think it's true. Sure. So. And, y and yet, I'm, I'm thinking while you're saying this, I, I wonder what the response would be if you asked people of other religions or of no religion the same question. If what you believe turned out to not be true, would you still believe it? And I wonder, um, I, I kind of am imagining you would get a lot of people that would still say, yeah, I would still believe in what I believe in, because yeah, and a lot of people today don't believe what they believe because um, they've intellectually investigated it and figured out if it's true or not. They just believe it because they want to believe it. <laughs> That's right. They have an irrational view of beliefs and religion and ethics, and we've talked about that in the past, and he actually talks about this in his essay. I'll jump a few pages forward, and he compares the different religions. He says, Hinduism, like Greco-Roman religions, is based self-consciously on myths. So it's based on mythical stories, which the people who observe the religion know are mythical. They know they never actually happened historically, but they are just bearers of truth, these myths. Mm -hmm. The yeah. Buddha rejected Hinduism's mythical gods and goddesses in favor of mystical, non-rational silence. Islam has words that are believed to be true, but these words were uttered by a prophet in the state of a non-rational trance. <laughs> uh, and he goes on a little bit more about this. There's essentially no way to verify it, because even though people sometimes were present when Muhammad went into his trances, they did not hear the voice of Gabriel that 
Muhammad heard. Mm -hmm. Then he compares that to Jewish revelation, and he says Jewish revelation was remarkably different. No one was asked to believe Moses because of his private, albeit very rational, encounter with the supernatural at the burning bush. The sign that God gave to skeptical Moses was empirical and publicly tested. Quote, I will be with you, and this will be the sign that to you that it is I who have sent you. Mm-hmm. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And he gave many other uh, evidences. So he goes on, I'll skip down a little bit. He says, Moses did not kill the firstborn of Egypt. He didn't have a sword. Moses did not part the Red Sea. Moses did not drown the enemies. Moses was not feeding them with manna. Moses not, did not bring water out of a rock. Mm-hmm. So this is the difference between Judeo-Christian view of truth and, unfortunately, many in the Christian world today that do not think that truth is important, even maybe think that Christianity is not true, and yet they call themselves Christians because perhaps they, they like it, they love this social part of it, or maybe they think it's something good, and, or that it, has, you know, that it has good results. I mean, we've been over many of the studies that show that Christians are happy people, and you know, it, brings, it does bring prosperity and health to you. So, but what we really need is the true Christianity— the Christianity that embraces truth and believes that it's true. And this goes back to, now he doesn't pick up on this in this essay, but this goes back a lot of this to the 20th century, probably the most influential theologian in the 20th century was Karl Barth. And he developed this concept that we call neo-orthodoxy, and it's neo-orthodoxy because it's not orthodox Christianity. Barth believed that Jesus didn't necessarily rise from the dead historically, but that it was still, it was like a spiritual raising, and Mm. it was historic in the sense that it was profound. And so (laughs) you have this neo-orthodoxy, this near-to-orthodoxy. He believes in Christianity, but he doesn't believe it actually happened. So, of course, he doesn't actually believe in the truth of the resurrection. And so this influenced much of the church, and it's crept into a lot of what we would consider orthodox churches, evangelical churches, fundamentalist churches, that, you know, really think it's possible to believe even though it's not true. That really uh, sounds like um, what we would call in the modern-day sense would be like liberal Christianity or Unitarianism or that kind of thing, where they say that they're Christian— they say that they're Christian, but they really deny the literal truth of most of the major doctrines of Christianity. That's right. And actually, Karl Barth was arguing against the liberalism uh, of the 19th century that had developed with higher criticism and, and basically claiming that you couldn't trust the Bible, and etc. And Barth made that transition saying, okay, look, it may not be historical, but we can have faith in faith. Right? We can believe right. it anyway, and it can be true for us. And unfortunately, many Christians have adopted that pose. So as apologists, we need to defend against not only the attacks, the direct attacks from atheists and other cults and non-believers, but we also need to defend 
true Christianity from a view, a false neo-orthodoxy, a false view of Christianity that has crept into the church so that there are many people in the church that even if it wasn't true, they would still believe it. That's because they're having faith in faith and not faith in Jesus himself, the, the one who really saves you. Right. Well, this so. this kind of... Uh the, what you're saying here really, um, for me, kind of describes what's going on in religious circles today, where a lot of people believe what they believe based on how they feel about it, not how they think about it, or whether they, like you say, whether they think it's literally or historically true isn't important. It's just important how I feel about it. Right. And if I like this, or it resonates with me emotionally, then I'm going to believe in it. Exactly. <laughs> Which is really yes. kind of an empty faith. That's, That's right. not it based is, on anything. It's not the Christian faith that has been handed down to us right. uh, over the millennia. And the other interesting thing I'm thinking is, uh, um, when I originally became a Christian in my mid-20s, the very thing that attracted me to biblical Christianity over all the other religions was the fact that the more I studied the religions of the world, the more it seemed to me that, that biblical Christianity made rational sense, and the other ones didn't. Right, right. It was based and, in history, not just, you know, your, somebody's imagination or, you know, baseless faith or feelings or, you know, pie-in-the-sky stuff. It was based on actual um, documented history, and there was something there you could grab onto and say, well, this is why I believe this. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. And that's the kind of Christianity that we talk about on this show. Right. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are talking about, and we're going to jump into it right now, what is the meaning of life? Now, Kirk, this is adapted. The notes we're using today are adapted from a book called Me, the Professor, Fuzzy, and the Meaning of Life. <laughs> So it's got a funny title. It's by David Pensgard, and he is a professor of philosophy at Liberty University. I'm hoping to get him on as a guest. I have attempted to make contact with him, so as soon as we can get contact with him, we will have him on. But I really liked this book. It's, it's a very unusual book. For one thing, it's, I don't know if you would call it a graphic novel. It's, I'm, well, it's not a novel, but it, it's a cartoon book. Um, it's a, I guess you could say a comic book. Right. But it actually, so, so he is a graphic artist and a philosopher. And so he steps you through this series of thought experiments, or, or I guess it's just one big thought experiment, where he tries to show that you can come up with the meaning of life just by thinking very hard and very carefully and going slowly step by step, kind of something like, Rene Descartes did uh, centuries ago. So uh, it's really fascinating. I just really enjoyed the book. And so, you know, it's got a lot of funny things in it because it's a cartoon and, and things. But yeah, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a copy of it yet, but I definitely want to get one because being a cartoonist myself, this sounds really interesting to me. Oh, you would. Yeah, you would really enjoy it. And, and um, I mean, it's a different style of cartooning than you do. It's black and white for one thing. I think it would have been nicer in color, but it still is a terrific book. So I just really enjoyed this step-by-step thinking process, you know, thinking about the different assumptions that we have and and starting a very basic idea, kind of like 
Euclid's Geometry, where Euclid, and I, I just finished reading that. Well, I didn't read the whole thing. I skimmed through it because I really wasn't in the mood to learn geometry, but I liked reading how he built theme by theme. And he just starts out by things like with a point and a line and defining things, and then you work your way up. And what is a line? What is an angle? And how do they interact? And then you build, slowly you build all these different laws of geometry based on the more basic things like the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, and and then you build up from that. Uh And so just as Euclid did that with geometry, this is what our author David Pensgard tries to do with with thought, he does a thought experiment where what do we know? Let's let's think basic thoughts about what do we know about the world? What can we know for certain? And then if we know a couple of things for certain, if we combine those thoughts together, do we discover something new right. ab- about the world that is for certain also? You build on those basic ideas that you know for sure. That's right. And you get more and more complex. So what I want to do is really follow those this thought experiment and follow these ideas. What are the basic things that you can know for certain, and how can we learn from that? And where can how far can you go basically before you maybe hit a wall of where you just can't go any further, and you just can't be certain about things any further. And it's very surprising. You go through this book, and you can get very far. So I'm not going to give away the secret of the book. But actually, uh, you do get to what the meaning of life is. So, so that's what we're going to be talking about. So I think this is going to take us a couple of shows. It's really, really interesting. Let's jump in. Let's jump in. So the first thing is to issue a warning. We have to be very careful about ideas, the, the kinds of ideas that we let into our minds, the kinds of ideas that are out in society, because... Ideas have consequences, Mm -hmm. and this is something we've talked about in the past. Good ideas have good consequences, okay, that makes sense, and bad ideas have bad consequences, right? If you have a bad idea, like, let's say, let's all be communists, all right? Let's Mm -hmm. all share all of the methods of production of, of wealth. Let's all share capital, and let's put that under the control of the government, and then we'll share, we'll reap the rewards together all equally. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that might sound nice, but that's a really bad idea. And guess what's happened? It's led to really bad consequences for the world. <laughs> I just read a definition of communism somewhere recently where it said that communism isn't so much sharing all the benefits of the communistic idea, it's sharing all the miseries of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> communism has got to be probably the worst idea ever to hit the earth. I mean, you look back at the communistic, atheistic ideas and regimes that have ruled the earth in the last 100 years, and about, depending on the estimate, about 160 to 170 or more million people were slaughtered because of these ideas. Yeah. So it, it kind of sounds good when you first bring it out in its very simple form, but the more you get into it, the more it kind of falls apart. And right. I think the real chink in it is is 
human nature just doesn't work with communism. If we were all perfect people, it might work pretty well. But the fact is we're not perfect, and therefore it, it just doesn't work. That's right. Well, likewise, good ideas have good consequences. I mean, how about the idea, let's build a hospital in every large community. Uh-huh. Well, that's a great idea. Yeah. So let's do that. Or let's, I know, let's build a kind of delivery system where you could write a note on paper and put it into an envelope and have a little stamp on it, and then it will be delivered to the address that you write on the outside. What a great idea. <laughs> at, so least it was, at least it was before email came along. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And there you go. Another good idea, email. Yep. <laughs> so... The problem is, though, about these bad ideas. That means that it can be dangerous to accept just any idea that you hear or read about, right? Yep. So you don't want to take in a bad idea not realizing it's a bad idea because it's going to have bad consequences in your life. So since bad ideas will affect you when you believe them, when you take them in, you have to really decide for yourself to accept or reject those ideas, right? You don't want to leave it up to someone else. I mean, you don't want to accept an idea just because some authority told you, right? I mean, maybe, obviously, I think you want to consider authorities, but when it gets right down to it, the ideas that are going to affect you the most, for instance, what's the meaning of life and what kind of life should I live, what purpose should I live for, those are going to directly affect you. Sure. So you need to yourself accept or reject those ideas. This reminds so, me of that old saying that was popular in the uh, 70s, I think, where people were saying, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. Right. And, and what you're is, saying is that's not true. What you believe does affect you. Absolutely. It affects you. It'll affect your family. It'll affect your community. And if enough people believe bad ideas, it affects your nation yep. and society as a whole. Yep. So it's important to have a way to screen out the bad ideas that you take in, right? Like a mental filter. Right. That's what we need to think about. What kind of mental filter can you use to screen out ideas? Right. Now, another thing to think about is that even though you might not realize it, people are very sensitive to other people's ideas. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, we've done shows where we've talked about some of the studies about how do people accept ideas and how do people respond when they hear someone else's idea. And do you remember that study that we showed where they looked at, they gave students a paragraph to read out of a book. It, ha it was a Richard Dawkins book where he talked about that you don't have self-control, you don't have free will. So they had them read that one paragraph, and they were able to show that just by reading one paragraph, the students were more likely to cheat on tests. They were more likely to steal money. They were more likely to be unkind. Uh, they were also more likely to be harsh in the handing out of punishment. Yes, so I remember that study. What's that? I remember that study. Yeah. So... It's amazing just by reading one paragraph. So it's amazing how we take in ideas without realizing it. I saw a study where they, were, they gave people the opportunity to cheat 
and they were monitoring them. They thought that they were not monitored, but they were actually being monitored. And all they did, the only difference between the control group and the test group was that in the, in the test group, on the wall were phrases like honesty, integrity, right? They were just like little banners that were on the wall. Uh-huh. No one pointed them out. No one said, hey, look at the wall, read this, right? They were just there in the environment. And yet it was enough to stop people from cheating. Wow. So the people in the room where those words were cheated much less. So we're, <laughs> we really, we take in ideas all the time. And if you hear an idea enough times, you might begin to believe it even without thinking much about it. Right. Okay. Just because so, you've heard it so much. That's right. It just got, kind of gets pounded into your head like a, a jingle from a commercial. <laughs> right, exactly, without you even realizing it. And the more people around you who believe it also uh, makes it much more likely for you to believe. So things right. like this happen all the time. I mean, we accept a lot of ideas that we just haven't carefully thought through. Right. The problem is that the bad ideas that you take in in this way without really realizing it have, can have a bad effect on you for the rest of your life. And you just really wouldn't know why. Like just you, you know. So this experiment that we're going to do is very important. It's going to help us to look carefully at our assumptions and examine them. Is what you think, if you're maybe an atheist or an agnostic or another religion or a Christian, or maybe like we talked about earlier, these uh, neo-Orthodox Christian, you know, are you going to live a happy life? Is this really going to work out for you? Is it this a good way to live or is there a better way? Mm -hmm. All right. Now, we touched on the idea of thinking for yourself and not just accepting something because an authority told you. Right. Right. So this that is means, always true. That means if Lady Gaga get, that means if Lady Gaga says something, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to better your life. That's right. <laughs> so we re shouldn't really rely on friends or or the music you know that we listen to, or sometimes even your own family. Uh, if these ideas are important enough, you really shouldn't just listen to you know, those around you. You should so, never follow anyone blindly. Absolutely. That's what we want to do. Not I've, follow anyone blindly. I've now, always believed be, that. Even when I was right. a kid, when I was looking for, you know, answers in life, I always, you know, the, the answers I would get from some people like, well, you just got to believe or, you know, whatever, uh, wasn't good enough for me. It was like, I'm not going to just blindly believe anything. I have to have a reason for believing it or I'm not going to believe it. Absolutely. That's right. And I, I hope that most people do think that themselves. I hope that most of our listeners really do think that. But let's encourage them anyways to think that way, to not do that blindly. And this really, I think I've told people in the past, this was really driven home to me when I was a believer in UFOs and I accidentally came across a book that debunked the whole thing. And I swore I would never... Uh, believe anything blindly again, mm -hmm. even though I thought that I had evidence for the UFO belief, but still I wasn't being open and I wasn't thinking clearly. I wasn't examining both sides of the issue. And you discovered that the evidence that you thought supported it really wasn't valid. That's right. So it's very important for people that they should know why they think what they do think. 
You have to know why you believe what you believe. Is there evidence to support it? Is it rational? Is it logical? Have you carefully thought out? You yourself carefully thought out. And you should see if the ideas that you have really make sense. Think about the life views that you have, the world views, the ways of thinking that you have about life and about its meaning. Do they really make sense? Does it make sense to be an agnostic? Does it make sense to be an atheist or a Hindu or a Christian? Mm-hmm. Well, it's so funny. This, even I, you know, I was age 24 when I decided, um, you know, I'd never had any religious training at all growing up. I really didn't know one religion from another. Mm-hmm. And at age 24, I said to myself, you know, I, it's probably time for me to look into this stuff to see if there is anything to it or not. And, it, you know, if there isn't, I can just chuck it all. But... You know, I felt like it's time to give this a chance to see if there's anything here or not, because I never really thought about it before that. And it's amazing that for the first 24 years of my life, I was able to just coast along, not really understanding or believing in anything. Yeah. And some people go their whole lives that way. And do you think you would have lived a happy life that way? Oh, no. I I was, it's a long story that I'm not going to repeat here, but I was just about at the point, I was always kind of a moral person growing up. And in my mid-20s, I remember thinking, you know, this being a nice guy and trying to do everything right all the time, and it's not getting me very far. Maybe it's time for me to give this up. Wow, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure there are many people who have gotten to that point. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons I decided, you know, I need to find out what to base my life on here because what I'm doing doesn't seem to be working. And, uh, you know, funny thing that that's when God came into my life and he he helped me to understand why doing the right thing is the best way, even if the consequences aren't always good. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you do the right thing and um, unfortunately you pay a price for it. But, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I was at the point where I was looking at my life practically and saying, well, you know, I, I do this and I do that and I, you know, I don't do this and I don't do that. And it's it's not really helping me a whole lot here. I'm not getting anywhere. Right. But once I investigated um, specifically biblical Christianity, I started to understand why certain things were morally right and why other things were morally wrong. And it was like, okay, now... I know why I believe this. Right. Yeah, far better to believe certain things because of the evidence and the logic, the reason behind them, than to just believe them blindly or because you happen to be born in a Christian country or something. Right, right. Well, if you're just listening to us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're talking about the search for truth, the search for the meaning of life. Well, Kirk, here's a good idea about this search for truth. Let's look for things that we can know for certain and see if those things will lead us to any new discoveries. Right. Okay? We're going to only concentrate on things that we know for certain, that there is no doubt about, and see what we know that's certain. And then can we build any new ideas based on comparisons and combinations of those things that we know for certain? Let's see where those basic truths can take us. Right. So here's the question then. Where do we start looking? Right. (laughs) Right? Well, why not start at the very beginning? Why not start at the ground floor from nothing? Just start from scratch. Right. No preconceived notions. 
no unexamined assumptions. Right. Now, you have to have certain assumptions, as we'll see when we get into it. And I don't remember the name of the guest we had. That's bad of me. Where he talked a lot about the presuppositions that everyone has. Was that uh, Assumption Jiu-Jitsu? That was. (laughs) Well, we are going to examine those assumptions and take a look and see if we can trust them or not. So let's keep an open mind. We want to be open to anything. We want to keep our mind open, but we want to filter these ideas, and we're going to use logic to filter them. Okay. Okay, so that's going to be our mental filter that we talked about. So let's do some definitions then, okay? This is how Euclid's geometry starts out with the definitions. What is a point? What is a line? What is a triangle? Okay, so what do I mean by logic? All right, logic is valid reasoning leading from an axiom to a necessary conclusion. Okay, what's an axiom then? (laughs) All right, an axiom is a statement or a proposition that is regarded as being established accepted or self-evidently true. So that would be what we would call a fact. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we want to use logic, valid reasoning, leading from facts to necessary conclusions. And then I said we should have an open mind. All right. What do I mean by that? Well, an open mind is a willingness to honestly consider and thoroughly analyze new ideas. Now, uh, let's remind people, too, that we're We're going through a book called Me, the Professor, Fuzzy, and the Meaning of Life by David Pensgard. So we're following the kind of way of thinking that he goes through in this book, this analysis of the ideas Mm -hmm. and what foundational ideas we're going to look at and, and then how do they build on each other. So we don't want to, by open mind, we're not talking about blind acceptance right? We want to allow for the discarding of incorrect ideas, right? We want to take ideas in, examine them, and then get rid of the ones that we realize are not true. This this kind of reminds me, you were talking earlier about geometry and mathematics. I'm kind of thinking of, as you're saying these things about logic and, and valid reasoning and stuff, I'm thinking of mathematical examples. Like a mathematical example of logic would be one plus one equals two. Absolutely. Now that that's, that's the wrong. fact that one plus one equals two is a necessary conclusion. And right. if I say one plus one equals four, then I can analyze that and pretty easily come to the conclusion that no, that's not right. That doesn't work. Right. Exactly. So that is self-evidently true. So so we want to uh, we don't want to close our mind to the world, but we also don't want to be gullible. We right. want to be open-minded, and we've talked about that on previous shows. Right. Also, if people are interested, they can go back and look at our series on critical thinking skills and how to think clearly, why people believe things and not others, other things. All right. So let's begin then. All logic starts with at least one assumption. Right. Okay. You have to start somewhere. Right. But the problem is that if you start with a faulty premise, you know, you build your foundation poorly – 
the whole edifice could fall down, right? right. You, you can get incorrect results. Right. It's like starting a math problem and making a mistake at the very beginning. Right. Wow, your results later down, if you do five or if it's a big math problem where you do five or six steps, you could be way off. If we start our multiple multiplication table with two times two equals six, we're going to run into problems. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> so right at the beginning, we have to think very carefully in selecting our first premise. So let me ask this question. What's the most basic assumption that we can make? Okay. What is it that we can know absolutely? Think about it. Okay. Just think carefully. What can we know absolutely? Well, I'm thinking of the philosopher that you mentioned earlier, and the phrase that comes to my head is, I think, therefore I am. Yes, that is Rene Descartes. Yes. Exactly right. So, for our listeners, did you guess that? The most basic assumption that you can think about is that you are thinking. Right. <laughs> so, there you go. There is something that we know for certain. Okay. We know that you are thinking. We are capable of thought. That's right. And you really can't say that anything else is as certain as that, right? I mean, because if it weren't true, then you wouldn't be able to say it or even think it. You wouldn't be able to think you are thinking unless right. it were true. Right. Right. Or, or I guess to put it the right way around, I couldn't think I am not thinking. I think I'm not thinking. <laughs> right? So it is irrefutable. It's, it's undeniable because to deny it, you have to do it. You, have, you would have to think in order to deny it. <laughs> right. So we know for a fact that you are thinking. Okay. Okay. <laughs> now, I know this sounds very simplistic, and believe me, as we go through this, it, we do start out very simple, but we're going to build one simple thought on another, and as we go <laughs> along, things will get more complex, and we're going to see some really interesting things. This is about as basic as you can get, that I think I'm thinking. <laughs> That's right. But now you know something absolutely. If anybody asks you... Can you know something for certain, right? If you get into an argument about truth and right. what's true truth and what's not, right. can you know something for certain? Well, yeah, I, I know that I'm thinking. Right. Absolutely, I know I'm thinking. And, right. and the next um, logical assumption is that if you are thinking, that means you must exist. Because if you there weren't, you go. if you and didn't exist, you wouldn't be thinking. That's right. That's what Rene Descartes said. Right? Right. So Cogito, now we have two things we know for sure. We're thinking and we exist. Right. Cogito ergo sum. I am thinking, therefore I exist. So that is the second thing that we can know. <laughs> Those who think exist. Now, that's pretty obvious, right? It okay, is to so me. <laughs> we've got two facts, right? These are just kind of self-evident facts <laughs> that I'm I'm thinking, and therefore I exist. Now we can really start using logic, okay? Now we can examine, we've got two givens or two propositions that we know are true, okay? So they, they are, again, you are thinking plus those who think exist, right? Now this then leads us very firmly to a conclusion by deductive reasoning. Yep. Okay? It has to be true that you exist. Okay? So, those who think exist, I am thinking, therefore, I exist. Okay. 
and and that is this I think therefore I am you know which is kind of painfully obvious to most people should be but it should be but <laughs> it's just good to know that if you think very carefully about things you can get through it it's sort of like it's like we're starting out with mathematics how far can we get with mathematics okay 1 plus 1 equals 2 okay Again, very basic, very simple, but if you think carefully about it, it's really true. One plus one really does equal two. Uh-huh. So, and geometry and algebra and all the other complicated mathematical uh, systems are all based on that simple truth, really. Right. And, and this is a kind of a thought experiment that other philosophers have thought about. So philosophers and theologians have thought about this kind of progression. Rene Descartes, that's why he started, that's where he got the cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Right. He started he, um, at the beginning too. He was too. trying to doubt everything. He was wanted to be know what he could know for certain. And so right. he decided I'll do a doubting experiment. You know, think about something, can I doubt it? Well, yes, I guess I can doubt it. And then when he got down to thought, he realized that he couldn't doubt that he was thinking because to doubt is to think. Right. So, and then he built back up based on that. And now, folks, for the real cliffhanger of today's show, we're just about out of time. That's so true. we're going to have to continue this in the next episode. Stay tuned. <laughs> well, we've still got a little bit of time. Not much. <laughs> uh, about three minutes, right? Yep. Okay. So let's see how far we can get with that. So it's not the job of philosophers or theologians alone to contemplate on the meaning of life, right? It's no. up to you also, because you may run out of time before you find it. Yep. And that's, Kirk was giving a little hint to everybody, because <laughs> he was talking about running out of time. Uh-huh. You're going to have to stay tuned step? to our next episode to find out what the next process here is. <laughs> no, we're going we're gonna to tell them now, but it does have to do with time, right? Okay. Here's what we can learn. Your thought processes require the passage of time, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, actually See, it does. <laughs> yeah, thought is comparing two or more ideas. Okay, so first you consider one idea, and then you consider the other, and you take note of the similarities and the differences. Right. So that means that we exist in time. That's true. So that's something that we can be certain about. We've just used up 55 minutes of it. <laughs> and, then, and then this implies the existence of beginnings and endings. That's true, too. So let's, what have we learned so far? You are thinking. Right. Those who think exist. Right. You exist, and you exist in time. Okay, so there is four things that we can know absolutely for certain. And if you join us next week, you'll learn... <laughs> more things based on those concepts that we can know for certain. So you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith. Please include the call letters of the station that you listen to us on. Join us again for more reasons to believe. But always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!